this is Joyce Bullifant, and you're listening to Retro TV Radio with host Patrick McCormick. fellow classic TV fans, and welcome to the season two premiere of the Retro TV Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Pat McCormack. I can't think of a better way to kick this season off than with my special guest, Mr. Butch Patrick. As one of the most admired and recognizable child actors, playing Eddie Munster was obviously his most popular role, but as you will hear, he did much more than that. He continues to thrill Munster's fans around the country as he's a regular at fan events, many of which accompanied by his cars. Which cars, you might ask? The Munster Coach and Dragula, of course. I hope you enjoy my interview with the Munster's Butch Patrick. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, the iconic Butch Patrick. Butch, how are you? Mr. Pat McCormick, how are you? You know, your name is a very famous comedian that also is named Pat McCormick. Great big guy. Yes, notoriously linked to him for most of my life. And <laughs> I, I, honestly, I'm not going to complain because the guy was a genius. Yeah, he actually played Lurch in the Adams Family Funhouse that I did back in the early 70s uh, as I played Pugsley. Now, that would have been... See, now, I didn't see that, and I should have. It was only a briefly one-shot deal. We had uh, Jack Riley and, you know, Mr. Car- um, and Mr. Carlin from Newhart was Gomez, and Liz Torres was Morticia, and then Stubby K, believe it or not, was Uncle Fester. <laughs> Boy, talk about a perfect crossover. I mean, at least in your case, it was perfect. Um, I'm trying to picture Pat McCormick as Lurch and thinking, how could he have kept his how could he have kept his mouth shut that long? <laughs> Our special guest star singing his way through the front door was Jim Neighbors. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> well, yes. Um, you know, of course, you're most well known as Eddie Munster from that show, which you know, was one of my favorites. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you, my friend. Um, no problem. But, you know, of course, your classic TV career, which some folks may not realize, started well before that. You appeared on a lot of series. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of stumbled into the business when I was seven years old. I, um, Mary Grady was my one and only agent, and she had opened up the world's first child at the child uh, actors agency exclusively. And I was one of her first paying clients uh, back in 1960. And I started off with a little movie called The Two Little Bears, which uh, worked with Eddie Albert and Jane Wyatt and Soupy Sales. Very good little Brenda Lee was 15 year old singing sensation was my older sister. And while I was filming that, I picked up a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial. And then right after we completed that, I then did General Hospital, the first episodes that were ever on the air wow and then that led on to a lot of guest starring roles in various movie parts uh, which led up to the real mccoys which i did a year of the real mccoys with uh the great you know walter brennan richard crenna um and then after that i went back east and the monsters got cast and they flew me back out for uh a screen test with yvonne de carlo which changed my life yeah well again you <laughs> you came in though almost 
a veteran. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking here, you are on My Three Sons, My Favorite Martian, Bonanza, Mr. Ed, Rawhide. I mean, and the list goes on, folks. Yeah, I did a lot of westerns. I could ride a horse. Um, my uncle supplied horses to the uh, studios, and um, that was really the closest affiliation that I had because people always ask, you know, how did you get in the business? And, you know, I really did stumble into it. It was an accidental situation. But uh, Uncle John did supply horses and had a ranch out in Newhall. Um, he's actually married to Georgia, and her maiden name was Spawn. And if anybody knows Hollywood, you know all about the Spawn Ranch. Right. Well, it's it's pretty amazing because it seemed like it was just serendipitous that you were going to make it in the business, even with those connections. But, of course, you got to ride a horse. Yeah, well, and I think it's really Westerns, too, because they were usually, you know, a lot of times they're outdoors and, you know, wear Levi's and be dirty and, you know, it wasn't like a prim and proper scenario uh, in the Hollywood uh, soundstage. So that was fun. But um, it was always a temporary job for me. Uh, I enjoyed it. It was uh, I was good at it. I had a knack for it, but it wasn't a calling by any means. It was more of a, a, a temporary set of jobs that were going to hopefully pay for my race car career. Yes, this is this is a jack of all trades here, folks, for sure. Yep. Well, and again, these different genres, um, Westerns. And of course, mm-hmm. sitcoms, um, even the Untouchables, which you would call, you know, drama. Drama um, of those of those three, and of course there are more. Really, what, what was your favorite, Butch? Of the of the series, or just guest stars? Um, of the genres. So, in other words, dramatic, comedic. Uh, all comedy. I always enjoyed comedies, especially a comedy where you got to play sort of a snotty or bratty kid in a comedy setting. That was always fun. Like when I did I Drink Janie, where I was Dr. Bells' uh, nephew, who Tony was supposed to fix from being a mean kid. And uh, that was a very fun episode. Uh, the Monkeys Christmas episode, where I played a little rich kid. I wasn't really mean, but I was, you know, very much the, the antagonist to their protagonist and in explaining to me the meaning of Christmas. Um, so that was always fun. Whenever you got to play kind of a bratty kid with issues that uh, turns around to be a really nice kid at heart. Do you think they made you more bratty by naming you Melvin for that episode? Melvin <laughs> <laughs> Vandersnoot. Uh, you know, that was like the highlight of my career up to that point when I was a 14-year-old kid spending a week with the monkeys. It was You really had to go back. And if you really weren't alive and and, and and following the monkeys at that particular time in life, they were like the Beatles. I mean, they were like big, really big, uh, except the Beatles never had a TV show. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. That Here's this kid, me, eighth grade kid, uh, landing the part of a lifetime to me at the time because I not only got to hang out with them, I was sort of an equal in the show where we were in a lot of scenes together. And it was, I was a very integral part of the, of the storyline where a lot of times kids at that point would be a simple background or, you know, you, you really wouldn't be in the meat of all the scenes. And that wasn't the case with the Christmas episode. I was very, very excited. So it goes without saying that you were more of a fan of the monkeys than the Shandells. Yeah. No, the Shandells were, you know, they were cool. They kind of looked like the Beatles. They had the Beatle type thing going on in the beetle boots and they're sort of an, an offshoot uh this was before obviously the monkeys so yeah i was really happy with the standells too that was very cool yeah i said shandells i meant standells um but <laughs> yeah and of course they're singing a beatles song on the monsters which yeah was do the ringo so they had like i want to hold your hand and do the ringo so they were like referencing all the beatles stuff they could they were like going to the well 
Yeah, I wonder. It was like, well, you know, we write songs too. Um, well, sorry, you're not trending. <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty interesting. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a huge Monkees fan, and so I get how you must have felt because, uh, you know, sure they were a comedy, they were actors, but they were also a hit machine. You know, it was just one after another. No, they're, I'm, you know, I'm good friends with, um, I, yeah, obviously I knew that I knew them all, but, um, there's a, there's a woman named Jody, Jody Ritson, who's does the monkey, monkey, uh, mania radio. And she's a big fan of the monkey, works a lot with Mickey and Mike and all this kind of stuff. And, and I've been following her and, you know, she really is very adamant about trying to get them in the rock and roll hall of fame and stuff. And when you say hit machine, they really were, they, 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 they didn't get a fair shake as far as the, the real talent that they had, you know, they were not just a manufactured situation. They were, they actually were very good at what they did. Hey, Mike Nesmith could write, let's face yep. it. He really yep. could. And I mean, a lot of people don't realize just how much he did do just outside of the monkeys. I mean, well, not, not only that, but if you really do the research with Mickey and Peter and stuff, and I, you know, Davey in his own right over in England, coming back and forth, you know, Davey was more of a entertainer of a um, Broadway kind of guy, singing dance band, but Peter in the late sixties, you know, he's living in Laurel Canyon. Mickey's house is the go-to house for all the party stuff. Uh, Peter Torg's loaning money to Stephen Stills to buy a boat. I mean, they were integral in in the fabric of the the music of the Laurel Canyon sound in the late sixties. They were they were right there at ground zero. They were in the center of the storm, so they were really active. And Peter was very talented as well. And Mickey, right, right. Well, they all were. And what timing, you know? <laughs> Seriously. Emphasis was just Don Kirster, you know. There was a, that was just a huge, just a big ego clash. Right. Yeah. Could have done it without them. Maybe not. But no, they no, they were they were all it was all part of the uh, all part of the uh, fabric. But um, that to me, my biggest problem was that was just the, the the why they're not in the Hall of Fame is is political to me. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> don't even get me started on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Jeez. I know. Jeez, we can't go there. <laughs> I look at the list. I look at the list of, of bands that I grew up with that I went to their concerts that aren't in the in the hall. It's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? How can these people not be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And yet, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of acts in there that have nothing to do with rock and roll that are in there. So we'll leave it at that. Well, there are two good reasons why Dolly Parton is, and I can't put my finger on them. <clears throat> oh, that's bad. <laughs> I had to borrow that one from Ruta Lee as she was talking about Frank Sinatra with me. I just couldn't put you my know, finger Ruta, on it. Ruta Lee played my mom in uh, Marcus Welby's pilot. Oh. Yeah, I looked for Marcus Welby when I was uh, the summer of 69, right when they landed on the moon. Uh, we were doing, I think, on All Flags Flying. And Henry Wilcoxon, a famous actor from the 40s, all the old... Um, Gladiator movies and the Christie movies and the and the uh, the um, or what's the movie that the, the genre I'm thinking of the uh, Crusade movies um, played my grandfather and she played my mom and and were you enamored I mean God what a beauty oh yeah and, and the coolest thing about that whole week that whole week was when they were landing on the moon uh, Robert Young let us all take off for like three hours because he had placed TVs around the soundstage now they didn't walk on the moon until like at night but they landed on the moon in the afternoon so. We had to watch all that. That was cool. Yep. I remember it, which dates me. But then again, that's why I love all the classic nostalgic stuff. Not only mm-hmm. because it was the best, but because it's my era, too. So now that we're at this point, I want to thank our mutual friend for hooking us up, Miss Kathy Garver. Hey, I did a family affair. 
I was just going to say, you know, who I adore, by the way, and I, I saw that you did an episode of, of Family Fair in 68. Now, was that when you guys first met? Uh, yeah, I think I got 68 in there, but I'm pretty sure it was 67, but it's close enough. But yes, that's when we first met. I didn't really get a chance to meet her uh, much at that particular shoot because uh, the structure of the storyline was us and uh, I'm pretty sure Johnny Whitaker's character was Jody. Right. And I think it was Anissa. So Jody. And uh, he wanted to be in a street gang that we gave him a task to do. So I didn't really see a lot of her, but that's where we first met. Yes. Yeah. Oh, such a sweetheart. And so thank you, Kathy, by the way. Um, last time I saw you, you were actually at a, an event with Mr. Whitaker. It was an event that you actually helped put together with our friend, Mr. Zemrak, the CroftCon. Yeah, you know, that was, uh, I'm very proud of that. That was something that I had been wanting to do for a long, 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 long time. And sometimes good things, you know, come to those who wait. Derek is a wonderful guy and I love his theater. Yeah. So we had uh, done a screening of Munster Go Home there. He says, what else you got up your sleeve? I says, I got to tell you, I go 30 years ago, I, I tried to put a CroftCon together that got close, but didn't quite get over the hump. And I go, and I would love to do it again and i think your theater would be a perfect host spot and he agreed with me and uh he took the idea and ran with it and um so we partnered up and he did uh he did the he did the hard part i had the idea granted and you know i did lidsville and i knew you know i knew a lot of the croft people but he actually uh made it happen so it was it was a great great turnout i, I couldn't have been more excited it's got it's got a lot of notoriety and it got it was well reviewed and people really thought a lot of it so uh, we're hoping to maybe do it again and uh possibly take it on the road someday Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm, I'm friends with Derek and he was like, yeah, I'm going to do this CroftCon thing. And I go, where? <laughs> and he went, well, here. And I went, oh, Derek, I don't think it's big enough. <laughs> 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 I mean, then again, it turned out perfect. It was, it was a per, it was, it was very, very well done. Perfect size. I was really happy. The one thing that I added to it that I was, that I was proud of was I got Caroline Ellis because we needed to include somebody from the Bugaloos and she's such a nice person. So we got her to do a little bit of a zoom type of, you know, Q and a from, uh, from Spain, which was wonderful. And, uh, she's, uh, she actually was one of the reasons I actually wound up doing Lutzville. Uh-huh. Let's hear that story. Well, Marty. Marty contacts me and I go out and I see this, the Crofts thing. And, you know, this is the summer of 71. And I got really long hair and I'm not really interested in doing a kid series. You know, I'm just kind of frustrated with the whole Hollywood business. And I'm pretty much on my way out the door anyway, because I told myself when I turned 18, I probably would quit the business to begin with. So this was already in my forefront. But Marty keeps reaching out. And finally, I go out to the studio the third time. And he's uh, I'm looking around and I see this big picture of these bugaloos and caroline's picture and i and i go oh my goodness i go look at her and i go so let me ask you a question if i do this show is there any chance that she might be a liar and he goes yeah <laughs> well i agreed to it she never did she wasn't even in the country oh <laughs> you know when you when she came up on the big screen that day at the, at yeah. the event i was just shocked with how beautiful she still looks yeah so that was funny that was how it worked out between sid telling me you know take it give me a ride and hurt me seeing me me seeing caroline uh, as as uh i think she was joy i think was her character's name so anyway never happened but we're friends uh via facebook and uh and uh social media so that's nice yeah well, that's great you know that we can stay connected that way and Amazing that we were actually able to talk to her live. I mean, I think it was like one in the morning there or something. It was yeah, 
Uh, and another good thing was that getting Sid and Marty together. They hadn't been in the same room for a long time. Um, and Mar and uh, and Derek uh, oversaw that. You know, he, we we brought in uh, Sid, and I know Sid well, and I met Marty many 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 times, but I knew Sid a little bit better. Um, and it was nice that they all. As the thing picked up steam and, and it became, you know, the, the response was all positive. Yes, it was such it was such a fun event. I mean, I, I'm I love Kathy and Wesley. Of course, they were there, and um, I yeah, I took the raft. They they threw me in the raft. Maybe go over the falls. You know, it was <laughs> it was really well designed. It was you know the right Aaron Baird. You know, who was a very instrumental part of all the Croft shows. Uh, her being there was a real treat. She was one of the, her, her and Billy Hayes basically made Lidsville um, a doable situation for me. I mean, it was like I signed on for 11 weeks. First week, I thought, what the heck have I got myself into? And it was Sharon and, and Billy that basically um, kept me going. Uh, Charles was fine. You know, he was in his own world doing his own thing. <laughs> but, but Raunchy Rabbit and Winnie Cheney were my go-to my, were my go-to pals and i also do a lot of the a lot of the other little people uh felix silla jerry Marin were both uh, in there as well and i knew them well so that's kind of what made lidsville for me a fun summer well yeah i can only imagine but again the talent is immense and they they, they knew how to find it they knew how to bring it in and it was amazing that both brothers made it to this event i mean i was like wow that's there's marty sitting right next to me i can't believe it it's only been like seven months ago too right you know i'm looking forward to doing it again so me and me and derek have got some plans to do we're gonna do a uh, he wants to do i did a movie with chuck jones um that i'm very proud of called the phantom toll booth and it's based on a book uh written by norman juster who recently passed away had a chance to meet him a couple years ago really nice gentleman and uh this was chuck jones's only feature film and it was shot in the Bay Area as well. So we're hoping to do a thing for that because of the book factor, the Chuck Jones animation fan base, and then obviously the book and the Munsters and Chuck Jones. We're hoping it would be a nice uh, nice turnout for that. So that might be the next project that I'll be associated with, with Derek at the Orinda. Well, can you promise me that you'll bring the cars for that? The, the Munster cars? <laughs> well, that's, you know, you got to remember, I'm, I'm about 2,000 miles away. No problem. You'll get here fast if you drive them. I mean, making those babies across country isn't quite as easy. And, but yes, I will make it. I will make a, a concerted effort to do that. <laughs> I said to Derek, we could have parked him right here in the lobby. No problem. <laughs> oh man, yeah. And so now I know you do events and travel around. Um, you bet. And is that again? We've had a pretty crummy last couple of years when it comes to doing personal events or personal appearances. Um, and I'm sure that affected you. Um, but hey, we're, we're diving into a new season here, a new summer. And I'm, I'm assuming you're going to get back out there on the circuit, right? You know, surprisingly enough, when I left in the, in the end of 19, when I left Florida, because uh, me and my ex had, it's part of the ways. And I basically was going, I was only, she lived in Florida. So I had pretty much relocated there, you know, for, for her, for us. Uh, when I left at the end of 19, I took my trailer to Atlanta. I took my truck up to Raleigh to my filmmaker's house. And I flew to California to go visit my sister just for, you know, just for the holidays and hang out a little bit. And um, right when I got there, they locked down the country. <laughs> the, the COVID thing happened, you know, like, you know, a couple first week of March, I believe it was. So 
it was weird that I'd sit out there and the country's like, it was like really weird. It was like eerie, no planes, no this, no that, no traffic. It was like living in a twilight zone. It was, it was very surreal. But about six months afterwards, I go, look, at I, I've got to go get my stuff. I just can't drop a 34 foot trailer with my lunch to go to my Dragula and just leave the stuff sitting forever. So when I went to get it, I found a car show in Wisconsin in June. So or June or July, I think it was, but it was still 2020. And what I did is at that point, I was basically going against the flow because everybody was locked down and everybody was, you know, hiding and this and that, which was, I understand, I get it. Um, but I had to go get my stuff and I did. And I started doing car shows, outdoor events. And I did them in the Midwest. I stayed away from the, um, you know, what would be considered uh, blue cities and, you know, places that had a lot of lockdown situations. And I kind of went with red states where were a little more, that were a little more liberal and they had a little a few more uh, job offers, you know, outdoor car events. And I, and I actually had a very interesting two years traveling, uh, crisscrossing. I didn't fly a lot. When I did fly, the airports were like absolutely ghost towns. It was very weird. And you'd be like on a plane with three other people. But I got through it, and uh, and we got and we got through it together. And that was the important part. But it was a very strange two years that basically turned out to be financially pretty lucrative because maybe there were so many people were shut down that when you went somewhere, people were so happy to get out, you oh, know, yeah. that they were they were just overjoyed to be coming back to normality, even though it might have been in its infancy. I I made a pretty good go of it over the last two two and a half years myself. I I stayed fairly busy. That's great. That's great. You know, I was, I was lucky. I was I was very blessed. I I know it, and I and I and I don't take it lightly. And I was very appreciative to those people who uh, who helped me out, and I helped them out. And uh, and like I say, with the cars and stuff, it's not like a personal appearance is more like an event. You come in and you you help a promoter uh, do uh, you know do like a concert situation. You you're looking at, at big numbers. Well, isn't that great? You know, it's a, it's an example of how nostalgia can save the world. Well, maybe not that heavy, but. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for, you know, people talk about the nostalgia in general and, and pop culture. And I, I worked in 1960, 1974. And I got to tell you that window, if you had to pick a window to be part of the entertainment and music industry, that's a really good 14, 15 year window to be part of. Um, it's very strong. People still remember it. People still like it. People still attracted to it. Third generation kids are watching it with their parents or their grandparents. Munsters fall right into the middle of it. And you got, you know, a little bit of Lidsville, a lot of the Munsters, a little bit of Phantom Tollbooth, a little bit of the Monkeys. I was very lucky to be part of a lot of um, stuff that, that that's very positive. And, it, and it's, they're actually teaching 60s in school to people because it was such a strong decade for so many different things other than entertainment, just histor historical significance. It's true. And I mean, as I read autobiographies, like I, I'm just devouring them these days, um, you know, folks such as yourself. And it it really is. It's astonishing just what a great era it was. And well, when the 60s hit and I had older brothers and older sister. And so I was exposed to all that of that which was going on at the time, maybe maybe a little too much. But with that said, <laughs> it was it was what got me um, into it. You know, people ask, why yeah. are you into the retro? What, and what is it that makes you uh, love classic television so much? And I, it's very simple. It's because it was the best. People ask me, like, you know, they say, how come they can't make that stuff like they, you know, they did back then? Why can't they do it today? And I go, well, we got to understand something is television, when it's first run, it's just a reflection of, of 
real time. So, you know, people, writers in the early 60s are living in the early 60s and they, they are writing about a different time that will never be duplicated. So it's not like you can do a period piece and you can sort of make it look like that, but to actually be physically part of it and have your mental, you know, your mental putting pen to paper back then in real time, it's not the same. It's different back then. And that's why you'll never able you'll never be able to duplicate it because it's how your whole day you would go about your day. It was a different world. And it's really difficult to actually duplicate that. It's easy to make it look the same, but it's hard to make it feel the same. Sure. And I, and I think, you know, the, the classic shows, specifically the Munsters, the Adams Family, it, it was one of those things where did they know what they had when they were doing it? You know, for me, it's like, well, no, <laughs> because they would have lasted more than two seasons. I mean, I, it's, it's like when I tell people I was lucky enough to do um, My Favorite Martian, Mr. Ed, I Dream of Jeannie, The Monsters. These were hit shows, the Beverly Hillbillies. I didn't do it, Beverly Hillbillies, but there were a lot of shows back there that were very popular shows that had really no basis in reality. Right. They were just there for sheer entertainment factor, great talent reading great lines from great writers about just funny stuff. You know, I mean, a little bit later on, maybe Get Smart and Green Acres, but during the black and white period, the early Bewitches and the Dream Genies, like I said, and, the, and the, I mean, Mr. Red, who in the heck doesn't like Mr. Red? Talking <laughs> for so it's so well done. It's so silly. It's so funny. You know, Ed surfing, Ed sliding into second. It's like, oh my God, this is so hilarious, but it made you laugh. And it had no merit whatsoever in reality because people were living reality. They didn't need it. They didn't need to come home and see it again. They wanted to be, they wanted to laugh. TV was the portal. It was the entertainment box. The weekends were for movies and picnics and going out for rides. But the weeknights were for TV viewing. Right. That's true. And it's like you say, the black and white era. Um, the foresight there was great. Um, but of course, hindsight, they're like, you know, those are pretty darn good shows. Why did we cancel them? <laughs> to put it in perspective, the color hadn't really come in to networking. We were on the cusp, 64, 65, and 66. 66 was the year of transition where shows went from black and white to color. Uh, that was the timing was us. We were always a black and white show. There was never really talked about color until 66. And then they decided not to go with it because the ratings weren't there. So they made Munster go home to movie. But up to that time, we were lucky for us because it worked better in black and white. I, it would have never, in my opinion, we were in the right genre because what we were doing, we were making film-like sitcoms, texture. They were shot on film. They were done at Universal. Universal was the monster studio, and they knew how to make these sets look great. They knew how to do the shadowing and the lighting and the cobwebbing, and they they knew how to make it really look scary, monstery like the early Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman movies. So for for us, that worked really well. And then you tied in the Leave it to Bieber producers with this very family-friendly point of view from a kid's, and they made Herman Munster like a very tall kid. And they wrote scripts that were funny and family-friendly from a, from a kind of a kid's point of view, which the Bieber was, the first one. So it was a very interesting mushing together of the Universal Studios and the monsters and the, and the Westmore makeup and the Leave it to Bieber storylines into a very successful family-friendly monster show right right you know i it's black and white and again for instance the monsters you know they used colored makeup if i'm not mistaken it was purple for for herman is that right well he was if you look at color pictures uh he he was he was more we were all basically different shades of blue white 
and gray shoe, but the highlights of the eyeballs and the eye sockets and the and the and the jawbone line that was like on Lily it was very green and and he was purple. Yeah, so there were there were lots of highlights, but the base the base structure of the face paint. Excuse me, but it was grease paint at first, then it went to pan stick. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was basically light colored with uh, accents. Right. And so how was that process for you? I mean, I mean, from what I've learned, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but that was part of the reason why um, Mr. Mumi was not, uh, didn't follow through with the part um, having to do with the makeup. That was, and that's another thing, how fate works out is like, you know, uh, if Bill had done the monsters, then he wouldn't have been available for Lost in Space. Which would have been tragic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have been, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I like the way it worked out, but who knows? Maybe he might have been Eddie Munster and I may have been uh, Will Robinson. You never know. Um, the, po the possibilities are endless with switch. Back, back when Bill and I were both kid actors, we never saw each other on interviews because two things. Number one, we were different types. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't, when you, when you put a breakdown out for a kid, the, the agent would never send us on the same thing because honestly, we don't, you know, he's red haired. I'm not, we, we just don't fit. So, he and I really never knew each other very much until we were adults and we're best friends now. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah, him and Eileen, I met him and Eileen both back in the, the early eighties. We were doing the today show together and that's when we kind of connected and started hanging out. Yeah. And there's a music connection too, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, you both. Well, I'm, I'm a Munster Manili. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> You mean you couldn't do fish heads? Come on, one rendition. <laughs> I did, you know, I wrote Whatever Happened to Eddie. I was involved with records, with Metro Media, but I was never a performing, and I told I told him up front, I was always honest about it. I said, I don't sing. They go, don't worry about it. We'll fix it in post. Uh, we'll get somebody to do it. I'm on American Bandstands, you know, lip singing my little heart out. We tried to go on the road, but you can't go on the road, but you don't really perform. It doesn't work. And, and for some reason, these guys thought that they could pull it off. And it was fun to be a rock star for about a year. And I recommended to every 19-year-old kid to go out with Metro Media's gold card and an A&R man and let them fly you around the country in first class and and meet hundreds and hundreds of women. And it's just, it was, it was like, it was like a really good time. Yeah. What a nightmare. Oh boy. I had a little taste of it. You know, when I was playing, I was a, in a band that was part of the general hospital storyline and we were a real band and, um, yeah, I had, I've had a taste of it. I put 45 years of effort into it. So I got something out of it, but, um, and, uh, well, and the fun part about it was, is, you know, we did that 71, 72 and, you know, most people we had Sugarloaf was my backup band and they were the studio band and this and that. And we did a BG song, you know, what can go wrong? We got a BG song for Sugarloaf. Well, the problem is you don't sing. <laughs> we got an issue with this. And it was like, not my fault. So then 12 years later, MTV comes on the air. And I decide we want to do rock videos, but we don't have a track record. So what do we do? We write, I write lyrics to whatever happened to Eddie and Phil Cohn and myself produce a, a rock video called whatever happened to Eddie. And it's, and to this day, we were the first unsigned act ever to be on MTV, which is a big cool back in the day is when MTV came out on the air, payola was very, very, very prevalent in the music industry. And it was all about pay, pay to play. So to get ourselves on the air without a record deal was, was quite, quite, you know, very quite a, an amazing feat. Well, and, and to tie in with that, just to bring it up to a little more modern times, when did you become aware that 
Rob was going to do Dragula. I didn't. I did not know that at all until I saw it. It just happened. So he did. He, Zombie did freaking Dragula, which is uh, one of his best, in my opinion. He does really good videos, but it's definitely one of his best. Yeah, and paying homage to the show, which. Gee, I guess he must be a fan of, you know, I, I was like, my voice is really messed up, Butch, as I was telling you last week. And I, I could always sing you a version of I am John 5, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll get you, John 5. <laughs> <laughs> but I can hit that note. And here's the, here's the ironic part of Dragula is he's doing Dragula's right, driving the Munster coach. Yeah, something wrong there. Hmm. Well, you couldn't fit anybody else in the Munster coach. <laughs> I mean, either that or George Barris just sent him the wrong car. Uh. <laughs> Well, it sings good in the song. You know, for so long, I didn't know what he was saying there, you know, and then I'm like, wait a minute. A lot of the lines of the, of the Munsters and uh, and music and stuff, you know, the Munsters has been, it's certainly not yesterday, but it has been recorded by the London Philharmonic, the Boston Pops, Fall Out Boy did the riff, you know, she wants to dance like Uma Thurman, Rob Zombie. The Munsters team, if you... um. Like when I go and do personal appearances and stuff, or I'm doing anything of a, a music related thing, and there's a band there, I don't think any band in the country does not know that guitar riff because wherever I go, it's it's and people have it as a ringtone. Uh, it's just it's amazing how strong the theme of the Munsters is in the music world, and then also. In addition to that, the 1313 Mockingbird Lane address is the most famous address ever utilized in television because they emphasized it so much in the stories and the script setups. You recently appeared in Rob's remake. Well, yeah. you, you appeared, but you didn't appear like I wanted you to appear. Well, you know, it was. I was happy. Pat and I were both just happy to be acknowledged, you know, by Rob, and and, and he's a huge fan. And and I, you know, it was funny when I was in Connecticut. I I took my Munster coach out to his house, you know, to take him for a joyride, and he had just um, gotten back from Hungary. And um, so I said, "What have you been uh, location scouting?" He goes, "You know, can you keep a secret?" I go, "Sure." He goes, "Well, I, I've already shot it." And at first, I was like, "Oh man, you know, oh. geez." And he, but he went on to explain to me that this was a prequel to the Munsters, how they basically came to America, and it's a love story about. Herman and Lily and getting married and this and that. And it made sense to me that, you know, obviously there wouldn't be an Eddie and there wouldn't be a Marilyn because that's it, 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 the, the original that he did, not the original, but the his version of it led the, uh, leaves it at the end where there's definitely room for a sequel if, if he so chooses to do so. Right. So that was nice. And the fact that he's a friend and he, uh, he allowed me to be the voice of the, uh, a little uh, tin can man who marries Herman and Lily. Nice, uh, you know, nice small piece, but a uh, but a very uh, very solid piece to do. So I enjoyed it, and when I saw the footage of it, when I went in to do my my earlier this year or last year, I should say, when I went in to uh, do my voiceover, and I saw it. I was immediately taken like, oh, this is going to be really good because I saw the texture of how he was going with it, and it. And it to be honest with you, it reminded me a lot of a Tim Burton type movie. Oh yeah, which which was cool. You know, I go, oh, I see where he's going with this. And then lo and behold, you know, Tim is over doing Wednesday. He's doing his deal and Rob's doing the Munsters. I go, wow, this is like 58 years later. <laughs> they're, they're, they're reliving this stuff again. This is like wild. Oh, and believe me, I was praying that right before you said, I now pronounce you, you know, I was going to take, now he's going to take the helmet off. <laughs> 
and say, I now pronounce you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, actually, I wasn't in that at all. Oh. I only did a voiceover. Darn. I was picturing yeah. you in it, Butch, but oh, yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. But I uh, I was happy to be part of it. Like I say, I saw it. I liked it. Uh, I think it was a great departure for him. I think he's a very talented guy. You know, he happens to do monster movies genre, but he's capable of doing other things, and he proved it. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a sense of humor, folks. Don't be afraid. He does. It was good. And I love Sherry Moon's version was spot on. Danny Roebuck's a good friend. Danny was great as the Count. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Richard Brake and everybody in it was good. Yeah, I agree. I agree. We had fun with it. Well, Butch, this has just been wonderful. I, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I'm Like I said, I've been a fan, well, most of my life. And... Uh, you know, it's great. You're, you're one of the survivors. And it was a great era, as you said, but it was also perilous. It's one of those perfect storms, a little two-year show a long, long, long time ago. But, you know, there. when I watch it, yeah, and I, sometimes I'll watch it and I just look at it from, you know, from a very interesting point of view because I like to look at everybody else's, you know, input other than mine. And whether it's the set design or whether it's George Ferris's cars or the music or the Foley artists, or just the writing. It's really a strong show. And I think that has a lot that it was really a good, solid, entertaining show with a lot of quality and a lot of that various levels. There really isn't a weak link in it, especially some of the guest stars that we were, you were lucky enough to have. Yes. Earlier that, yes. Uh, it was strong all the way across the board. And I think that's any show that can live that long has to have that, um, strength in it of quality i mean yeah it was unique and it was funny and it was campy but it was also a quality show absolutely couldn't agree more and i i'm i'm hoping that you finally did give up that nasty habit of biting your nails and um because i just did a thing where the guy wanted to do that joke and i did it again (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh and it's like the number one question whenever i go anywhere what is it where's wolf wolf right Right. And and what were the nails made out of? And were you really eating them? And what, what? <laughs> it's, it's wax. Everybody needs wax. Oh, yummy. Flavored. <laughs> and if any of your listeners need to reach me or they want any Munster stuff, you can go to uh, Munsters.com and all things Munster on the gram. And uh, everything will be taken. Uh, you can find me through all kinds of social media, but go to Munsters.com and all things Munster. I appreciate it. Yes, there is great stuff in the store there, folks. I highly recommend you you, you take a look. Um, yeah, just you've got great merchandise. And how could you not? I mean, what a theme. <laughs> it's fantastic. The Munsters was a very heavily merchandised stuff. A lot of the stuff you see there isn't really mass produced stuff. It's kind of like one off stuff that is made as people order it. So that's nice, too. And then there is some regular stuff that you can get at the store. But it is a good store. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you all very much for listening. And thank you, Pat, for having me on. Thank you, Butch. And take care. Absolutely. You too, buddy. There you have it. Another retro TV radio episode in the books. Be sure to check out Butch's website, Munsters.com, to see all of his incredible content and Munsters merchandise. Also, be sure to become part of Butch's online community. Go to the official Munsters fan group on Facebook and on Instagram at All Things Munsters. I'd also like to thank our mutual friend and former podcast guest, Kathy Garver, for arranging this wonderful interview. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and leave me a positive review. 
You can also follow me on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Golden Rage of TV and on Twitter at Golden Rage of TV One. I'm your host, Pat McCormick, and thanks for listening to Retro TV Radio.